Stand with me as we rise to read our sermon passage this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you. And as we come to Daniel chapter 8, something that you wouldn't be able to notice, of course, in the English translations is it's suddenly shifted after the previous five chapters have been in Aramaic, the passage before us is written in Hebrew, uh, which signals for us, actually, there's going to be attention to the vision that is given to Daniel, attention given to what's coming for the future history of God's people there in exile. And so we'll make our way through the entire uh, chapter in the course of the sermon. But let me just read the vision uh, for us in the first 14 uh, verses and then pray and we will continue after that. So here now as the Lord does speak to you uh, through his perfect word this morning. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, Across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, the east, and the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of the sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. 
And we would ask this day that you would sanctify us according to your truth, that we might know your comfort, that we might know the Spirit's conviction. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I would imagine that many of you would agree with me that there are some questions that can have peculiar power in defining and even describing uh, significant portions of our life. You can think about a young man bending down on one knee and asking his hoped-for bride-to-be, will you marry me? And that question comes to define, doesn't it, so much of subsequent life. Or you can think about a young married couple, they go to the doctor for the first time when the wife is pregnant and they ask the doctor, well, is it a boy or is it a girl? The answer to that question tends to define, doesn't it, so much of the rest of their life. Or you can think about another person that goes to a doctor having received a terminal diagnosis and that person asks the doctor, how long do I have? An answer that defines and describes so much of the rest of their life. Now, there are questions that are eternally significant in God's Word. I'm sure many of you know a few of them. You can think about Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? Uh, You can think about even people, crowds, individuals, after hearing the apostles preaching in Acts, saying, what must we do to be saved? And the answer to that question, defining eternity for them, But there's another question that shows up all throughout the Bible, and it's really much more of an anguished cry. It's the question of, how long, O Lord? And we just sang it earlier, didn't we, in Psalm 13, where David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? And this great scene in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet is commissioned... And his call there at the heaven, heavenly throne room is to, to preach the truth to a people who aren't going to hear and a people who aren't going to see. And Isaiah responds not just by saying, here I am, send me. He responds by saying, how long, O Lord? Or there's this moving scene in the final book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 6. The apostle John sees the souls of martyrs underneath the throne, underneath the altar there in heaven. And what are they crying out? But how long, O Lord? until you establish your justice on the earth. And I tell you all of that because if you glance down again at verse 13, you'll see that the central question of our text is simply, how long, O Lord, is the suffering going to last? And so if you weren't with us last week in our study of Daniel, what we saw is the second half of Daniel begin in chapter 7. The first six chapters are all well, primarily historical, and the final six chapters, as we began last week, are primarily apocalyptic. It's as though uh, the text moves from uh, mostly a human perspective on events on the earth to a more heavenly perspective on events in the earth, because what uh, apocalyptic literature does, doesn't it? It so often appeals back the curtain of heaven, it tells us to look, tells us to see, tells us to gain something of the perspective above on what's happening here below. And apocalyptic literature was common enough in the time of Daniel. It was common enough throughout the known world. It was typically used, believe it or not, for various nations to speak about how their king was better than other kings or how their god was better than other gods. And we, we saw this even last week in this vision of the Son of Man ascending to the Father's right hand in heaven to the Ancient of Days. And it was there in his ascension that we saw that the Son of Man, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. 
He received all glory. He received all dominion, all power. He received the kingdom. Because as Daniel so continuously wants to tell exiles, like you and me, living in a land that's not our true home, uh, there's one king who will rule over all kings. And there's one kingdom that will rule over all kingdoms. And that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what we saw in last week's vision in chapter 7, it was truth communicated primarily through this vision of four beasts arriving from the sea. And what we're going to find in today's vision, surely you noticed, is now it's focusing on two beasts. And Daniel 8 is really just an expansion of the perspective on two of the beasts we looked at last week. The beast of the bear and the leopard in chapter 7 have a clear correspondence to the beast of the ram and the goat in chapter 8. And so I want us to see, just as last week it was a apocalyptic vision that called us to see the Son of Man. Uh, I want us to see something about the Lord today. I want us to see something particular about his power, not just over kingdoms and rulers in the world, but his power for suffering people who so often cry out, how long, O Lord? You know, if you glance forward to chapter 8, verse 26, you'll see that the angel gives something of a title to this vision as he calls it the vision of the evenings and the mornings. So the theme that I want us to see today is the Lord of the evening and the morning. And as these things so often go in Scripture, when you come to chapters like this, it's like the first half is just the revelation of the apocalypse, and of course the second half is the interpretation. So I want us to see as we're trying to learn more about the Lord who reigns over all evening and all morning, we want us to see, first of all, in the first half, suffering will come. And the second half, suffering will end. In that first half, what I want to do is just kind of largely read through it once again and help you get some sense of the comment that Daniel is going to soon receive. But not just that, the the experience of Daniel in that moment as he's beholding something of another nightmare there in his experience. So the first thing we need to see today, first lesson we need to learn from the vision is that suffering will come. You just glance down at verse 1, we find out this vision happens two years after the vision of chapter 7. It's a vision that we're also told transports Daniel to the citadel, that's the capital city of Persia, uh, of Susa. And notice again what he sees as it's though we move from chapter 7's jungle book to the animal farm of chapter 8. Verse 3, we find out that Daniel sees a ram standing on the bank of the canal It had two horns, and both horns were high. One was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power as he did as he pleased and became great. Now, uh, the text is going to tell us soon enough exactly who this beast represents in historical perspective, but you don't need to know that right now. All you need to see is that, of course, it's a beast that comes from the east, because where is it moving? Westward and northward and southward. And it's like a blitzkrieg from the east. So powerful is this eastern nation in the perspective of this apocalyptic vision that no one can stand against it. No one can stop it until Daniel sees another beast come, and that beast not only can stand against the ram, oh, that beast can crush the ram. Because you'll see what he considers in verse 5 and 6, a 
male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which was standing at the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. Uh, you notice children in verse 6, it says uh, that this he-goat, as old translations would have it rendered, he's, he's not touching the ground as he's moving. Uh, so what, what does that communicate, children, if you've got this animal, this beast that's not touching the ground? Well, we would probably think today it's flying. But it's not just that it's flying. It's communicating the immense speed of this nation to come as it's going to seemingly subdue the entire earth, and it's going to come from the opposite end of the nation that represents the ram. And what the text tells us is evidently this second nation represented by the goat has no problem dispatching the ram in all the goat's rage and wrath. Look at verse 7. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So imagine if you can, being Daniel in that moment, seeing this vision. Perhaps the sense that you would have in your heart spiritually and emotionally. As you see these powerful beasts. As you see these mighty animals wage war against each other. It's vicious, isn't it? It's altogether violent. This is no simple and easygoing scene of calm that Daniel gets. Isn't it so often that as we look out upon the world in which we live, rarely do we look out seeing calm. Much more often, what do we see? Chaos. Wars and rumors of wars. Viciousness and violence run amok. But evidently, as soon as that powerful horn comes... There on the goat, it disappears. Look at verse 8. Became exceedingly great, the goat did. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns to the four winds of heaven. And it's just like the vision in chapter 7. How this beast that even no animal in the animal kingdom could adequately describe. And so Daniel doesn't even use one with that fourth beast of chapter 7. But eventually, that vision didn't it focus, you might recall from last week, on this little horn. Here's another vision of these great majestic kingdoms. You need to always remember that so often in the Old Testament, kingdoms were represented by these beasts from the animal world. Well, it's a vision that now focuses actually the fullness of the terror on another little horn. As you see what he does, verse 9 and 10. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled them. So it's a scene of further violence, isn't it? of further hardship in the most brutal way possible. So students, think about this direction now applied to the little horn. He's going to the south, he's going to the east, and then Daniel says he's going to the glorious land. So where's the glorious land? Of course, for Daniel, that's the promised land. He's in exile living in Babylon. That that holy city of Zion, that, that Mount Jerusalem, that's where this little horn is going. 
And it's there he's seen with this apocalyptic language, God's people trampled by the little horn. Using the language of stars and hosts of heaven, that's so often throughout apocalyptic literature in the Bible, it refers to God's people. Uh, you might think about God's call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he says he's going to make Abram's descendants as numerous as what? The stars in the heavens. And here comes this little horn that evidently is going to trample over many of them. Suffering will come. That's what Daniel's seen. You know, some of you might know that C.S. Lewis wrote something of an autobiography that was titled Surprised by Joy. And if you had the occasion after each year to write just a brief autobiography of those 12 months that the Lord had brought into your life, uh, perhaps you might look back even on 2022 and you might, might title your personal you know, work of autobiography. You, you could Perhaps, because of God's providence in your life over the last 12 months or so, say, yes, I too knew a year surprised by joy. Uh, I often think, though, that if, if many of us were to write such an autobiography, the title would shift to something like surprised by grief or surprised by suffering or how much of an ordinary Christian's experience here on earth is one of hardship, one of suffering, one of difficulty, that we weren't prepared for. And yet here's a vision that we're soon going to see stretches quite a few centuries into the future for its fulfillment. What's the Lord doing for preparing his people for the suffering that's soon to come? And you'll notice verse 12 tells us why the suffering comes. A host will be given over to it altogether with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and it will prosper. It's possible in the reading of verse 12 that the transgression there, the because of transgression phrase, it can apply to the sin of the little horn. It's probably more likely that what it actually applies to is the sin of God's people. And as we'll soon see in the interpretation section, when you know something about the history of the fulfillment of this prophecy, it makes sense that this is judgment that's come upon God's people there in the Holy Land because of their sin. But it's a profoundly religious trampling that goes on with the little horn. Again, notice verse 13 as the question comes. Someone in heaven says, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. How long is the suffering going to last? So if you pause there for a second and just think more broadly about the spiritual reality that Daniel has just seen. Uh, what you'll see that he has just seen is nothing more than perhaps Satan's favorite play in his spiritual playbook. Because what's happening here? You have Satan bringing forth a ruler to persecute God's people. And what's going to bring about, or I'm sorry, what the experience of persecution is going to be is not so much that they're just trampled underfoot in his power, but he's going to trample God's truth on the ground. He's going to run amok over God's people. He's going to ridicule. He's going to minimize. He's going to even remove altogether the sacrifice as he opposes God's temple. And isn't that what Satan continues to do in various ways, but quite similar ways even today as he tramples God's truth 
as he tries to trample God's temple, which is the church, as he tries to minimize and and ridicule the sacrifice that is the perfect, precious blood of Jesus Christ spilled on the cursed cross of Calvary, removing it, ridiculing it, through minimizing its necessity, through minimizing even its offense. What Daniel is seeing here in short compass is nothing more than what is so often the experience of God's people throughout church history, fighting against an enemy, That wants to trample them asunder. And so naturally, this angel asks in verse 13, how long until it ends? Well, the answer is in verse 14, isn't it? For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So that brings about the interpretation now in the second half, as we're going to see Not only that suffering will come, but the good news of the passage that Daniel hears and even sees is that suffering will end. For our God is the Lord of evenings and mornings. I don't know if you've ever had one of those nights where you had dreams that were interrupting your sleep along the way and perhaps for a variety of different reasons you woke up and wondered if the dream had any particular experience. Uh, significance in your own life's experience. And uh, that's certainly what Daniel has here. You'll notice in verse 16, as he desires to understand this vision uh, that he has seen. And he hears a voice, surely it's from God in verse 16, uh, telling someone to tell Daniel what, what the vision is all about. And you'll see who this someone is. Verse 16, the Lord calls Gabriel, commanding him, make this man understand the vision. So kids, you can uh, probably agree with me, I imagine, children, that Gabriel is the most famous angel in all of the Bible. That's probably because in many of our churches and many of our traditions, it's every year, usually during December, and because of Gabriel's work in revealing the coming birth of John the Baptist, but not just John the Baptist, but even telling the young Virgin Mary that she was going to give birth to the long-expected Messiah, that uh, Gabriel's justly the most famous angel in all the Bible. This is the first time he shows up, at least by name, in the Bible here in Daniel chapter 8. And you'll see what, what Daniel's response is to the appearance, this awesome appearance of Gabriel. Verse 17 tells us, When he came, Daniel confesses, I was frightened and fell on my face. Uh, now you want to remember that angels are God's messengers and servants. So often angels are God's servants to deliver God's message. And even Daniel's response, how tremendous and awesome was uniquely Gabriel's appearance there in Daniel's mind. Well, that kind of response, isn't it? Fear and reverence to a servant bringing God's message. One of the more distinguishing marks of true Christianity Uh, The more and more you grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more and more you mature in the Spirit, the more and more when God's servant delivers God's message, you feel your heart weighed down, don't you? With the gravity of the truth, with the glory of the truth. And you'll see what he declares, Gabriel does from the outset, the end of verse 17. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. He's saying, Daniel, this vision is all about the end. Therefore, we should ask, what end? 
You don't want to race to quickly just assume that it's about the end of all things right before Jesus returns. Actually, the context and the statement from Gabriel in just a second is going to tell us it's for a particular end in the history of God's people, a particular end of the transgression there in Jerusalem. And Daniel's so overwhelmed with evidently that simple statement, you'll see in the following verse, that it's almost as though he falls into this spiritual coma from which Gabriel needs to revive him. And once Daniel is revived, Gabriel then gets on with the business of telling us what this vision of the two goats is all about. Look at verse 19 through 21. He says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, well, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So it's simple enough, isn't it? Perhaps in all the bizarre apocalyptic imagery there, what, what Daniel has just seen is the kingdom, united kingdom of the Medes and the Persians rising that we know eventually gave way to the kingdom of Greece. But it's this particular horn that is what occupies so much of Gabriel's words and Daniel's attention with this he-goat. You know, there was a, a few weeks ago that we were watching some game at the house and one of the commentators was talking about one of the players as the goat. And understandably, one of the kids was like, why are they referring to so-and-so as the GOAT? And some of you might know that it's become a normal thing in athletics to speak about certain players in certain sports as the GOAT, uh, the, the greatest of all time. And uh, what's before our eyes here in Gabriel's interpretation it, with this large horn, conspicuous horn, as Daniel refers to it as, uh, there from the goat is one of the greatest military leaders of all time. It's simply Alexander the Great. And if you know anything about Alexander the Great, you know exactly why this is what Daniel is seeing right here. He was the son of Philip of Macedon. He grew up under the best education that the empire could provide. So his personal tutor was Aristotle. Alexander, by the age of 21, becomes general of the Greek army. Within five years, remember, he's going all over the whole earth is the way Daniel speaks about the goat's advance. Well, within five years, he has conquered Alexander the Great, almost all of the known world. It was said that not long after that, he was found crying and asked why he was crying. He was crying because he said there are no more kingdoms left to conquer. But almost as quickly as he came, he departed, not even seeing out his early 30s. And it was true of Alexander the Great when he died that his kingdom split into four different parts. With each part of the kingdom, north, south, east, and west, one part going to one of his generals. Which then helps us understand exactly why Gabriel says what he does. Look at verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation. So four kingdoms out of Greece is all he's saying, but not with Alexander's power. And then, just like in chapter 7, the focus, even the fixation of the vision is on this little horn. This tiny little thing protruding. But powerful enough he is. Notice verse 23, he's said to be a king of bold face, one who understands riddles. He's said to have great power, you'll notice in verse 24. 
even one who with fearful destruction shall succeed in what he does. Verse 25, without warning, he shall destroy many, many mighty men and people who are saints. So let me tell you about the little horn. Uh, you, you might not know that throughout the centuries of Christian interpretation, virtually everyone agrees on who the little horn is. Because it's simple enough, isn't it? If, if the ram is the Medo-Persian empire and, and Greece is represented by the goat and Alexander the Great is this great horn splits off into four kingdoms, who's the little horn that goes south, east, and to the glorious land? Well, he's a man named Antiochus IV. I want to tell you a little bit about him uh, so you know why the Jews in Jesus' time would think of him as the dark lord of depravity. That Antiochus is the one who you must not name. Such was his desolation, and so many were his abominations in Jerusalem. So he belonged to one of the kingdoms, the Seleucid line. He was the eighth one down. He was a completely insignificant person. It was actually his nephew that was supposed to ascend to the throne. But as so often happened in those times, it was through his own political maneuvering and conniving that Antiochus, he, he takes the throne, and he begins to move south invading Egypt. He begins to move east, conquering Persia, Parthia, and Armenia. And eventually, in and around 175 BC, well, he shows up in Jerusalem. And he begins to wage a war of desolation and full abomination. And he had taken to his name by that, by that point a nickname uh, that history records as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meaning something like God appearing. So he thought of himself as the appearance of God. And many people actually under his rule who would say so when he wasn't listening would refer to him by a different name that was a play on his preferred nickname. Not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes, which just means madman. Because he was mad and thirsty with blood. One of the ancient documents that were recorded when he came to Jerusalem, he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and to butcher all who took refuge in their houses it was a massacre of young and old, a slaughter of women and children, butchery of virgins and infants. They were 80,000 victims in the course of those three days. Blood ran in the streets of Jerusalem. He removed all the regular sacrifices. He removed all the regular Sabbaths. He removed circumcision. It was Antiochus Epiphanes that set up there in the temple uh, an altar to the pagan god Zeus. It was Antiochus Epiphanes that famously would slaughter and offer to his pagan god unclean animals there in the center of the temple, which if you can imagine, to a 2nd century B.C. Jew, Oh, it was the height of abomination. Oh, it, was, it was the height of desolation. It was the height of reason to cry out, Lord, how much longer until this is over? You'll see that it's going to have a clear end. Notice verse 25. By his cunning, his little horn, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall rise up even against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. History tells us that Antiochus died of a simple fever. Such is the Lord's sovereignty over kings and rulers, that he can put them down with just a tiny piece of bacteria. He's coming. Suffering is on the way. He will be broken down. 
suffering will end. That's what Daniel's seen. I had a conversation not long ago with a young pastor who asked me quite urgently, what do you do with, with all the books that church members give you? And I said, well, you could do a lot of things with those. You, know, you scan some of them. Uh, you, you read carefully others of them. And then some of the books that you receive, you, you read a few pages, perhaps only a few chapters, until you realize you need to buy uh, more copies of that book because it's, it's certainly worth sharing. And one book that falls into that latter category that I received not too long ago, it's a book about suffering and sorrow. It's about the seasons of sorrow. A father recounts experiencing after his 20-year-old son died suddenly and, and tragically. And somewhere in the middle part of the book, he speaks about reading an old sermon by an old master preacher. And uh, this preacher in the sermon on suffering said, quote, the singularity of sorrow is the dream of the sufferer. Now, what that means is, whenever God's people go through suffering, there's always the temptation to think, I'm the only one that understands what this feels like. Uh, and he says this preacher, this preacher slapped him in the face with that statement. Because as he was reading that sermon in correspondence with another book, he realized that his son's death had brought him into what this other writer called the sacred circle of the sorrowing. Uh, the fellowship that belongs to God's saints, intimately acquainted with loss. The sacred sorrow of the suffering. I want you to see how Daniel responds to this sacred circle this experience of suffering. Look at verse 27. He says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. If we have our interpretation right, and I think it's simple enough to say that we do, according to Gabriel's words to Daniel, Daniel has received this vision, hasn't he? Uh, of events that aren't really going to begin until well after his life. They're not going to come to an end until something like 300 plus years after his life. But you'll notice how, here how Daniel's not like one of the famous kings in the Old Testament. A very godly king in the Old Testament says, this king named Hezekiah, who hears about coming suffering and tribulation that's going to belong to God's people, but it's going to happen after his life. And if you know that story well, you know, might, might know that Hezekiah simply says, well, at least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, what Daniel says is, uh, I don't know when this is going to happen. Well, we know it's going to happen centuries in the future. But he's so connected, isn't he, to God's people's outcome, to the experience of the saints, that he's utterly overcome in agony, spiritually and emotionally, such as the suffering that's going to belong to other people. I wonder if you've ever felt that kind of agony, that sense of being overwhelmed at the suffering of another saint. I so often wonder in our context if we even have time to learn about the suffering of other saints. So full is our ordinary day with life's concerns and cares. Well, Daniel is overcome. You might be overcome in the same way with future suffering and to prevent you from being overcome in an unhelpful and unholy way, let us begin to see as we now start to close a few truths about the Lord of evening and morning. For this is no doubt a vision that's principally about that. When you get to a place in your life, suffering comes or it comes upon another. 
and you find your heart crying out, how long, O Lord? How long can this last? Remember three things. The first is this. The Lord of the evening and morning knows. The Lord of evening and morning knows. Look at verse 26. Gabriel says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. It's actually interesting, and we don't need to spend time with this, but in higher critical scholarship, the vision has been so true historically that many unbelieving scholars are convinced this chapter was written many centuries after Daniel's death because he would never have predicted things so accurately. But Christians, we say what? Of course. God knows everything. And why is that a comfort to people like you and me? Your suffering never surprises God. Your suffering never shocks God. He ordained it. He even decreed that it be so. He's Lord of history. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 7 and so many of the chapters of Daniel. Therefore, he's Lord of prophecy, the Lord of the evening and the morning. He knows, number two, the Lord of the evening and the morning. He cares. He cares. You see, verse 26 ends. Daniel is told to seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Students, that's a way in in the ancient world of speaking about prepare this document in safety and security so when the time comes, it'll be ready to be read. The Lord is saying, I'm going to care for you and prepare you in the suffering to come to help you know that it's not a surprise to me and to help you know that it's, it's going to end too. It's one of the more striking things, actually, in the course of this vision. Why is it that Antiochus Epiphanes, this, in the grand scheme of things, this small little ruler in the world, frankly, in a rather insignificant part of the world at that time in history, gets God's unique, particular attention? Why? Well, because it's that little horn that's trampling on God's people. And his unique, particular attention is always on his people. So often, isn't it true that we would want the Lord to reveal history to us, the future of what's on the way? I wonder, actually, if we would really want such things, because maybe like Daniel, what the Lord would do is sit us down with one of his angels and say, hey, tell my dearly beloved child all the suffering that's soon to come. But tell my dearly beloved child that I know about it, that I care for them through it, And perhaps the great good news is the third thing you need to see. The Lord of the evening and the morning, he delivers. Because if you go back to verse 14, it's this enigmatic time stamp of sorts. The answer to the how long question is for 2,300 evenings and mornings. There's two ordinary ways we could take that. We could say it just simply means 2,300 days something like six years, that actually maps out quite nicely when the temple was restored after Antiochus Epiphanes' horrors in Jerusalem. It could also mean, because the text more literally says, evenings, mornings, 2,300. In the course of the context there, it's speaking about temple sacrifice, evening and morning, often used in the Old Testament to refer to sacrifices given at the beginning and end of each day. So maybe it's just saying a total number of sacrifices need to be offered before the end will come. And I can tell you this, I really don't know. I know either one works actually quite realistically with the history there in Jerusalem in the 2nd century B.C., 
But I can tell you more certainly what it's telling us is this. Suffering will end. The deliverance will come. The Lord of the evening and the morning, he knows, he cares. And he promises to deliver. So maybe you can think about so many years into the future when Jesus Christ was sitting around a table with his disciples in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed. After giving them a relatively long series of instructions, he says, I've spoken these things that you may have peace. And then he continues this way in the final two verses of chapter 16. But know that in this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. The Lord knows. He cares. He promises to deliver. That's why one of those disciples listening to him that night would later on write a letter to first century Christians saying, anyone who's born of God has overcome the world. I hope that you might be found born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the Father knows about you. The Father cares about you. The Father has promised in His Son to deliver you from all sin and suffering because He is the Lord of all evenings. He's the Lord of all mornings. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your grace would minister its power to us uh, this day, that we might be comforted in our affliction, that we might be sustained in our suffering, that Christ might even draw near to us through his word and by his spirit. We pray in his name. Amen.